It is a good season, church, to just think about the coming of our Lord. You know, we tend to think of Christmas as and the Christmas season, the Advent season, you know, all the, oh yes, tot time. If, uh, if you've got a, a child age three to six, they are, are dismissed to go to tot time, they'll have an age-appropriate lesson there. So, uh, yeah, we, we, our culture tends to think of Advent season as this mushy-gushy, oh, everybody gets to love each other, that's the meaning of Christmas, and no, it's, it's not. We have a message that is far more grand than just, aren't things nice? We have the message of God coming into the world to save us from our sins. God's rule and reign is here in Jesus Christ, our King. Oh, it is a, a good, good message, a good, uh, good news for us. Uh, re- real quick, uh, a few weeks back, and even connected to what I just said with the, the Globe Bank, uh, I talked about uh, the joshuaproject.net. We talked about you could go there to that website every day and see uh, a new people group that you could pray for so that they would receive the gospel. And uh, I learned uh, from Ben Holstein that there's actually an app, uh, which makes sense. You know, there's an app for everything nowadays. Uh, but there's an app that you can put on your phone from Joshua Project. So just search for Joshua Project uh, in the App Store. And then really every, uh, every day, they will give you a new uh, people group to pray for. So you don't even need to, need to get uh, on your computer and go search for anything. You can just have that thing push it to you right every morning. So I encourage you to do that. Check out the Joshua Project app. All right, church, we are back in Matthew chapter 10. We got this week and next week left in our series, Behold Your King. Uh, will you stand if you're able with me? And uh, we will be reading from Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 33. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, 
I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, please, in your mercy, send your spirit and give us tender hearts this morning. Help us to hear from you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church. I did uh, come back from vacation. I haven't really gotten to share too much about it with you. But uh, one particular thing that happened to us while we were gone was a, a little surprising. One evening, I had a pretty serious craving for some ice cream. And so we hopped over to the buffet kind of after dinner, and uh, I was like, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to get a big old bowl of ice cream. And they had what appeared to be chocolate and vanilla, so I started mixing them together. And uh, I, my first warning that not was all as it seemed was that the vanilla ice cream had some raisins in it. Now, raisins, not a common ice cream ingredient, at least not in my neck of the woods. And uh, so, you know, I'm filling up my bowl, and I go and sit down, and I take my first bite, And I was not ready for the crime that was committed against my mouth. (laughs) My my first thought, I kid you not, was why did somebody create a NyQuil-flavored ice cream? So, obviously it was not NyQuil, but it was some sort of alcoholic-flavored ice cream. And and church, I I don't drink alcohol. I don't enjoy the taste uh, at all. And so I was just like, why? Like, what is wrong with this? This is terrible. And it was strong. It was some sort of hard liquor stuff too. And it was, it was just not fun, not fun. But it, the truth is, if I had been expecting that, and I was told I had to eat that ice cream, something terrible would happen if I didn't eat the ice cream. I don't know under what circumstance something terrible is or it happens when you don't eat ice cream. I, I wish that was the way the world worked, but it's not. You know, terrible things happen when you eat too much ice cream. But if I was forced to eat that ice cream and I had a good expectation, I, you know, I don't know what it is, hold my nose, do something, I could swallow it down real quick, I could get it down. The expectations would have made a big difference. But man, in that moment, oh, it was, it was rough. Right expectations prepare us for the difficulties ahead. We looked at some expectations last week, and today we're going to see more expectations. And we're going to see specifically in the truth, the truth that, that persecution is going to come. When that persecution, the hatred, the hardship, when it comes as the result of our faith, and sometimes it may not even be persecution, it might be just a little bit of discomfort or embarrassment. When that comes because of our faith, The reality is we are often tempted to shy away from proclaiming. We want to say, eh, no thank you. But today's passage offers us tremendous encouragement to keep going. Keep going. The Lord is with us. Fear not. In our passage today, there's many warnings that we get. But today's passage really is a passage of hope. It's warnings mixed with great, great hope. Now again, we've been in this Behold Your King series. We're seeing our King and how Jesus has sent out his disciples out of a heart of compassion. And they've been sent out with a message to proclaim the good news. The good news that God's rule and reign, his restorative rule and reign are here in the world, undoing all of the wrongs. His rule and reign are here in Christ. He is our King. So we're telling others, behold, this is our king. And as we see in the passage today, when he sends them out, he gives them warnings, and he tells them specifically, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
You're going into a place where there are wolves and you are sheep. You will ultimately be defenseless. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So he gives them this kind of command to be wise and innocent or discerning. You know, when he says wise as serpent, it's basically the idea of being shrewd, discerning, be smart about what you're doing. Don't be a dummy. Don't just believe the best and hope that it'll all work out. He says be wise, but also be innocent as doves. So not naive, but not morally uh, culpable. Be someone who conducts himself in a manner where the only accusation they can rightly bring against you is that you're proclaiming Jesus. So be wise as serpents. Don't put yourself in unnecessary trouble just for the heck of it, but be innocent while you do it. So don't be foolish, but be innocent. And most of what follows in verses 17 to 33 are really a picture of what this looks like and him equipping them to expect the terrible things that are to come. Really, he's kind of leaning heavily into the, hey, be shrewd as serpents, be wise as serpents uh, part of this uh, command, this warning. Now, where we're going today, we're going to walk through a set of expectations and that's going to be kind of the bulk of our time. So if you're kind of get through, we get through the first point and you're like, oh my goodness, why is this taking so long? Don't worry, that's most of it. And then we're going to look at what that persecution reveals and then ask a so what? So what? So that's where we're going this morning. So let's dive in to our first point. First point is this, as we proclaim, we can expect persecution. We can expect persecution. Last week we saw that we can expect different responses. There will be some who receive the good news and there will be some who don't. And this week we clearly see that Jesus says not only will they reject you, but there will be persecution. Persecution. So starting again in verses 17 to 18, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now, here we start seeing that this mission that Jesus has sent them on, he's kind of really talking about the far future. Because remember, he sent them on a mission to go to Galilee, and all of a sudden he's talking about bearing witness before kings and governors and Gentiles. So clearly here we're kind of shifting into this future orientation. Uh, at least in this little speech that Jesus is giving. And so this ultimately is for us as well. It's a warning to us that, yes, we are going to be rejected and we are going to come before the authorities to give an account of what we've been saying. We will face opposition. Now, the way that he kind of structures this little speech is there's generally a command or a promise of some sort, and then there's kind of the, the expectation of the why, or the expectation that gives the why of this command. So the command here is beware. Beware of men, kind of going back to the idea of, hey, be wise as serpent. But why? Because you are going to face opposition and persecution. It is coming. You will be both hated, we'll see that in a bit, but you're also going to be accused of wrongdoing because of your faith. You don't go to court unless wrongdoing has, been, has happened. So here we see that Christians will be accused of being in the wrong. And we have a fear, do we not? We fear this. We don't want to be in the wrong. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to have to face opposition. Why do we fear this? Ultimately, I think we love our stuff. We love our relationships. We love our respectability. And we love our very lives. 
our stuff, relationships, respectability, our lives. We want to cling to those things. And persecution and opposition threatens them. And so that's why we're tempted to deny. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not really proclaiming that stuff. That's why we're tempted to kind of back away. Because we want to protect those things. And Jesus is giving us these words in order to keep us going. To tell us, hey, it is worth it. Keep going. Now, I want to note two things in particular about this persecution. One, it's because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. It is for his namesake. We're going to see that more in a bit. But I want to say that normally we can think that persecution is because of us. Oh, I'm doing something wrong. Or I'm, I'm not complete in some way. But Jesus makes it very clear. This is because of him. It's for his namesake. When we are declaring who he is. They are rejecting him, not necessarily us. That's the first thing. It's because of Jesus. But secondly, this persecution that he tells his disciples and us to expect has a purpose. It's to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. It's to bear witness. Jesus says this persecution, it has a reason. When you face embarrassment because of your faith, when you face people pushing against what you have said, Jesus says, that's not meaningless. There is purpose behind it because as you stand firm, you get to declare the good news. It's put on display. Think of Paul standing before King Agrippa and governors Felix and Festus at different points well, toward the end of his ministry and his life. What a privilege it is to be able to bear witness. I remember a few years back, a friend of mine, a missionary friend of mine, was sharing how there had been a Chinese pastor who was interviewed on, on a Christian radio here in the U.S., and the host, at the end of the, the interview, offered to pray for persecution in China to stop. And the Chinese pastor stopped the host. He said, no, no, no. Please don't pray for that. Persecution's going to come. He said, pray that we would be faithful and that people would hear the good news. Because persecution wasn't meaningless. He's like, I don't want this persecution to go away. Because persecution shows people that the gospel is true as we cling to it. As they see our lives being transformed. The truth is, the church is the most healthy when it faces the most opposition. Because when you face opposition, all those other cares and concerns get revealed as just secondary. My stuff, my relationships, my respectability, even my own life. I begin to see, oh yeah, that's not really what matters. Jesus is what matters. Jesus is what matters. And persecution helps remind us of that truth. Now, for many of us, I'd say here in Sioux Center, Iowa, we're not really being threatened with prison. So we read these words, we're not really even faced with much discomfort at all. So how in the world is this relevant? Why am I taking time to go through this passage of Scripture? Well, a couple of truths, one of them. This is true in many parts of the world. And just because we're not facing blatant persecution in Sioux Center, Iowa, does not mean that blatant persecution is not happening in other parts of the world. So we need to be confronted with this truth. And we need to ask ourselves, how would we respond? So that's one particular truth. But secondly, I do think it, it asks the question of us, 
If we were living in one of those places where persecution was happening, where, where, where we were threatened with jail, are we living in a manner that would put us on trial? If someone looked at your life, could they say, oh, hey, we need to lock this person up. He tries to convince other people to worship this other King Jesus. She speaks out about the sin in this culture. He refuses to bow down and worship our gods and our leaders. Her whole life revolves around Jesus instead of what we say her life should revolve around. Would somebody actually be able to point to your life and say, yeah, that's a threat to our regime? Because that's the way we ought to live, whether we're being persecuted or not. That's what God calls us to be. Now, church, we are not really threatened with our lives. We're not even really threatened with losing our stuff. Maybe we might lose a relationship and respectability. But we are still fearful, are we not? We're fearful of losing those small things. But Jesus speaks to that fear in this passage. He doesn't want us to just say, woe is us. But he gives us these expectations to say there's something else coming and it's good. Let's look at this second expectation that we can have. It's a good thing. It's a promise. As we proclaim, we can expect words. We can expect words. We see this in verses 19 and 20 in this little next section that Jesus says, when we witness before them, or sorry, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious. There's the command. How you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So the command again, do not be anxious. And the why? Because you have the Spirit of God with you speaking through you. It's a beautiful promise. See, anxiousness is the fear of the unknown, in a way, right? Like, something unknown might happen, and it creates fear or anxiety within us. And Jesus is addressing here a fear. Now, interestingly, you would think after he talks about, hey, you're going to be going before, you know, kings and authorities, and you're going to be persecuted, you would think, but don't be anxious. You, maybe the thing that would follow would be, you'll be exonerated. But that's not what he says. He says, don't be anxious. Why? Because your Father will speak through you. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but that doesn't really address the deep anxiety that I would have. I'm like, I, I might lose my life, but the promise is that I get to speak? Excuse me. That, uh, get that mic off before uh, <laughs> I coughed. Um, the promise is that he will give us words and that he will be with us and that we will get to continue to be a witness. We will have the words to say to affirm Jesus. And this is a beautiful thing that the God of the universe says he is with us, speaking through us. Now, this isn't an excuse to not prepare. It's not saying, well, God's going to speak through me, so I'm just going to live my life. I'm never going to do any study. I'm not going to do any thinking. I don't have to do any of that. No. Instead, this is supposed to be a comfort. 
A comfort to us saying, God is there with you, and you don't have to worry whether you're going to have anything to say. He's saying, no, I'll be with you, and you can continue to proclaim Jesus. I think a, a way to think about it is, is kind of like Spotify. Uh, Titus, where'd you go, Titus? There you are. Okay, Titus is listening to music all the time, right? Titus's understanding of music and different musical genres is far greater than mine. Okay, I listen to about three songs for about six months that I'm just jamming out to, and that is not a, not a lie. Like, it is a very short list of songs that I'll listen to, and then maybe I'll move on to something else. Titus has like a library of 10,000 songs like in his head. It's just, he knows everything ever written, you know, at least, at least from my perspective, because again, I know three songs. And so, Titus's understanding of what music might be appropriate in any given situation is far more than mine because he has that understanding. Or, you can think about it this way, a CD, not an MP3 CD, but like a CD CD with audio tracks, you know, how many songs could you fit on that? Like 8 to 15, depending on length, you know, going, it's probably similar to, a, you know, a cassette from back in the day, and yes, I do remember cassettes, I don't remember 8 tracks, but uh, cassettes, yes, but a CD, you know, they were the thing in the 90s, and when the iPod came out in the early 2000s, it was revolutionary because you could fit a thousand songs on there, right? And sometimes we look at this passage and we think, oh, God's going to speak through me. It's like having an iPod with a thousand songs. No, it's more like Spotify where you have an unlimited library at your fingertips where God is able to speak through you. Now, the more that you do the work and study and learn apologetics and know what to say, the more songs you will have at your fingertips because you know they're there. Titus knows about music that is out there. So if he has a Spotify or Amazon Music or whatever subscription, he's going to know how to access way more music than I ever will. Why? Because he's done the work. In the same way with us, as we are walking with Jesus, we need to be learners so that when we are put in those positions where we need to open our mouths and speak, we'll be ready. And yes, God will speak through us. He will comfort us. We'll have his spirit and we will know what to say, but his spirit will be interacting with what we've learned and it'll be us speaking as well. God doesn't get rid of our humanity. He works through our humanity. That's how we have this book. He worked through the personalities and knowledge and experiences of these authors. And it's the same thing here when we go in front of others and have to defend and declare who Jesus is. We can expect words. We can expect words. Okay, we got to keep moving. The third thing, third expectation. As we proclaim, we can expect rejection from those closest to us. We can expect rejection from those closest to us. We see this in verses 21 to 22. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, children against parents, and we're going to be hated by all. That's where Jesus goes with this. And then he encourages the one who endures to the end will be saved. What Jesus says here is incredibly radical and offensive. We've talked before about how the, the family unit was the most basic unit of their society, and you were completely loyal to your family. So this is a shocking statement that Jesus then brings out and is like, no, the family is going to be torn apart. Torn apart. We're going to see more about this specifically next week, so I don't want to spend too much time on this. But Jesus, in light of this, says those closest to you will turn on you, and what do you need to do? Keep going. 
endure. The one who endures to the end will be saved. We should not be surprised when those that are closest to us turn against us. Don't be surprised. We are losing much when we follow Jesus, but at the same time, we are gaining so much more. We'll see some of that here in a minute too. Now in verse 23, we have this curious statement. And commentators say this is one of the most difficult statements in all of the New Testament to know and to figure out what's, what the heck is he talking about? What's going on? Truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, first off, it definitely is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14. Let me read that to you real quick. I've read this before. It's a key verse in the Old Testament. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we have this idea of the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days, receiving a kingdom. And when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, that is what he is referring to, Daniel chapter 7. So we're at least, we at least know that Matthew and Jesus are referring to Daniel 7. But there's some problems with, with this, and at least on a kind of cursory surface level reading. Because what does it mean that the Son of Man will come again? There are three main explanations that Jesus could be talking about here that I think are faithful to the text. An unfaithful reading would be, well, Jesus was mistaken about when his return would be or whatever the Son of Man, uh, the coming of the Son of Man means. He was mistaken about that, and so he was just wrong. Like, we, can't, we cannot go there. That is not an acceptable interpretation because we believe that Jesus is infallible. His word is infallible. The scriptures are infallible, so it's not that. So what is it? The three faithful explanations, and by the way, whichever one you would choose, and we're not going to unpack these greatly, they all really, I think, have the same point. Okay, so that's where we're going to go with it. But the first one is that Jesus is talking about the second coming, and that when he says he's not going to the towns of Israel, uh, or he, you won't have finished going throughout the towns of Israel, he's really talking about the whole world. Okay, maybe. Problem with that is that Israel, elsewhere in Matthew, refers to Israel. Second, uh, second offer would be that Jesus here is talking about his ascension, his resurrection, and then his ascension, like he's coming before God and receiving all his authority. Okay, but is that how Matthew usually refers to the coming of the Son of Man? I don't think so. You can go look at Matthew 24 to see that. The third one, with the one that I personally uh, hold to, is that uh, he is talking about the judgment on Jerusalem that happens in A.D. Uh, 70 when the temple and Jerusalem are destroyed. That, that is kind of a small, a coming of the Son of Man. There will be the coming of the Son of Man, which is a great day of judgment, and this is a coming of the Son of Man. And they will not have finished going throughout all of Israel before A.D. 70. That's the one I hold to. This is a complicated issue. Feel free to come talk to me if you want to explore those things. But what's the point of all that? We, regardless of which view it is, of those three views, and I think all are, are attempting to be biblically faithful, the point is, is that there's a deadline. That something's going to happen. And that they just need to keep going and keep proclaiming. That's what he's encouraging them to do. Because this comes right after the call to endure. 
And he's saying, just keep go to the next town. If you have to flee, flee. But keep proclaiming. Why? Because the Son of Man is coming. There's a deadline. So are we proclaiming? Okay, so church, we can expect persecution, we can expect words, and we can expect rejection. Where's the hope in all of this? I mean, there's hope in the words, but it's kind of sandwiched in the middle of terrible things. Where's the hope? Here's our second point, and this is really what the persecution and all these bad things reveal. It reveals that we belong to Jesus. Jesus is kind of saying, hey, in verses 24 to 25, which we'll look at, this reveals that you are mine. You should expect these things because this is what I'm going to go through. And you belong to me. You are my child. You are my servant. You are part of my household. So this is what you should expect. In verse 24, he's, yeah, you're my disciples. You're not above the master. It's enough for the disciple to be like the teacher. Last week, Pastor Nolan talked about how the, the authorities kept looking at Jesus and saying, hey, he's got a demon. They've called the master of the house Beelzebul. How much more are they going to malign you? And he counts them as part of his household. Servants, but also children. This persecution reveals that we belong to Jesus. We have this wrong expectation that if I am faithful to God and I do everything perfect, I shouldn't expect persecution. If persecution comes, maybe I've said something wrong. Jesus said everything right. And he was executed, murdered unjustly. That is the way of our master. Why should we expect anything different? And he's saying, you are mine. Think about it this too. Jesus was betrayed. He, was, he allowed himself to be slandered, called demonic by us and for us. I mentioned this week after week. That when Jesus, he, he, he tells his, his disciples to go out and expect persecution and to suffer because they belong to him. And he did all of that for them, for us, even though we rejected him. Even though we are guilty of saying, no, I don't want you to be my king. He continued to suffer for us. That is the beauty of this reign of this king. That he did not come and just wipe us out and destroy us, but he came and invited us invited us through his suffering on the cross to become his. What beautiful truth that he died for us on the cross. We deserved to die, but he died for us. If we believe that Jesus is our Savior, we can suffer for him because we've gained the world. We're counted as part of his household. So why not suffer a little embarrassment, a little rejection? Because that's what we suffer in our culture. Having people tell us that we are bigots. Nobody's putting us in prison yet. That day may come. It may come soon. It may come a long time. But when it comes, so what? We're following in the way of our master. That's what he did for us. So what do we do with all this? 
Well, this last chunk of text, it's kind of a big chunk, but it basically leads us to this conclusion. In light of the Father's care, we do not fear, and we keep acknowledging Jesus. There's a command that happens three times in this last paragraph that we're just going to go through quickly, and it's do not fear. It's the most common command in the Bible. Do not fear or fear not. But why? It's because of the Father's care. And then what do we do? Not just don't fear, but we keep acknowledging Jesus. It's all based on the Father's care for us. So let's look specifically at the text. In verse 26, we get the first command, have no fear of them. And then the, next, the rest of that verse in verse 27 are basically saying, proclaim, proclaim loudly. You know, because Jesus is going about and doing his ministry and he's having his private conversations with his disciples and he's saying, when all is said and done, I want you to be proclaiming what I have told you. I want you to tell the world the good news that I am king and I am here and I am restoring the world. Don't shy away. Shout it from the rooftops. We don't need to be ashamed of the good news. Proclaim it loudly. Do not fear. That's the first one. The second one, He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Basically, don't fear man. Instead, we are to fear God. This is not Satan he's talking about when he says, rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul, soul and body in hell. He's talking about God. God. Fear of God is a common theme in the Old Testament. And this isn't a shaking in my boots, oh my goodness, God hates me type of fear. But this is a I am controlled by God and in awe of him type of fear. And Jesus here really is revealing the stupidity of fearing man. When he says, when you fear those who are persecuting you, it's like fearing a kitten as opposed to a lion. The kitten's not going to do anything to you, ultimately, eternally speaking. But the lion, he says, fear the lion, because he's the one who has all power and authority. He is the one that we need to worship, not man. And when persecution comes and we are tempted to either deny Jesus or to dumb it down a little bit or to say, ah, you know, maybe it's not all that great, we are fearing their response over honoring the Lord. May we fear the Lord. But here's the beauty of it. Jesus doesn't just stop there and with, you know, hey, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. He then talks about the Father with the last command in verse 31, fear not Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So yes, God is great, but he is a God who cares deeply and intimately. Fear not because your father cares. Church, we need to hear that. I I hope and pray that I never tire of sharing this message. I've shared it before. I know that I have had many sermons where it's like, God tells us not to fear. Why? Because he loves us. And it happens again throughout the scriptures. Fear not, your father is with you. And he's not here talking about kind of physical provision. You know, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, we saw him talking about sparrows and how God cared for them. And here he's like, yeah, you may die, but God still cares. Why? Because you have great value to him and there is an eternal reward. Your persecution is not meaningless. He uses the example of the sparrow in the sense that he's aware of everything that happens to the sparrows and he cares. So that means means kind of how much more would he care about your life? It's not too small for God. He cares about you. Your persecution has purpose. And we do all of this. We continue going 
because of his concern. And specifically, we keep acknowledging. It's one thing to say, don't fear. I can say, I'm not fearing. But then if I don't do anything, it reveals that I am fearing. So I must continue on and acknowledge Jesus, which is where we get in the last two verses. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the result of fearing not. It's acknowledging Jesus. Now this may feel like a threat, but it's not. This is supposed to be a comfort or a promise. Jesus isn't saying, hey, live your life and make sure you're on your toes and don't deny me because if you do, you're out. That's not what happens. You know, Peter denies Jesus and Jesus restores him. We are secure in Christ. Those who are in Christ, who are his, we will keep going. It's the doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. If we love Jesus, we will continue walking with Jesus. So our acknowledgement of Jesus in the face of persecution does not make us a Christian. It reveals that we are Christians. And so Jesus acknowledges us before the Father. It doesn't make Jesus acknowledge us. It shows that we are his and he will acknowledge us. God is good. He holds on to us. He cares about us. And so we can keep going. So church, where are you tempted to deny Jesus? Is it a particular topic where you're like, ooh, if I touch that, it's it's too much. Can't do it. I don't know if it's LGBTQ issues or whether it's race issues, or whether it's money issues, or whether it's Jesus' lordship issues, whatever it is in your life where you are afraid to speak up, maybe it just is the simple gospel itself with people who are close to you, whatever it is, where are you tempted to not give full-throated endorsement to what God has said? I know there's something for all of us, so what is it for you? where you're about to speak, and you're like, oh, maybe not. Maybe not. What is it for you? Are you tempted to protect your stuff, your relationships, your respectability, your very life? If so, Jesus has specific words. Do not fear. Do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. It gives us our big idea today. Fear not. Keep proclaiming, church, we have a good Father. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you do care for us greatly. We thank you that in your kindness, we can trust that you are there with us. You will give us words. We thank you that the suffering that we endure for your name's sake is not meaningless, and that you have a purpose in it. We thank you that you hold on to us. We thank you that you are our God. You are our Savior. Jesus, you are our King. May we continue to acknowledge you, King Jesus, before the watching world. Strengthen us, please, and don't let us shy away as a church. May we continue to move boldly into the world, proclaiming that your rule and reign is here because there are people that need to know. 
I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.